Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Father, sometimes we worship you loudly, energetically, demonstrably. We lift our hands, we get on our knees, we move our bodies, and sometimes we worship you quietly like a son or daughter standing next to a good father that they borrow strength from, they borrow stability from, that we just don't have on our own. It feels like that this morning as we're singing. Thank you that you are a good father, that you hold us long enough, as the psalmist says, to quiet us by your love. And to sometimes stand amazed and quiet before you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you want to turn in your Bibles uh, now, Matthew 6, 1 through 4 is where we're going to be at today. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's completely okay. If you don't have a Bible, that's completely okay. And you can just listen and follow along. I want to start by saying happy Father's Day to all the dads. And granddads, we love you guys. Um, And just because we're not doing a panel for the dads like we did for the moms this year doesn't mean there's less love for you. So just so you know that. I tell this story every year on Father's Day, I think, on the South Side, at South Side. So some of you who've been from the beginning have heard it a few times. You get to hear it again. It's good enough to tell multiple times. My dad taught me a lot about life and empowered me to handle reality as it showed up in so many ways. He's an awesome dad. And when I was, he would often use basketball to do that. So um, one time, like he would always have me do something when we were done with the workout, which our workouts sometimes were like three or four hours. I mean, they were long basketball workouts. And he would always have me finish with making so many shots in a row. So we would do, one time, he would say, um, make 50 free throws in a row. We've been working out for three hours. You're tired, time to go home, but you have to make 50 free throws in a row. And then we're done. It wasn't that hard for me to do. It wasn't a huge deal, so it sounds shocking, but he had trained me so well that it just didn't, didn't bother me. So I, would, I remember one time, I think we were at the College of Worcester in the gym, and I made like 48 or 49 in a row, and then I missed it. And I was like, ah, bummer. Well, close enough. And I went down, I sat down, I was changing my shoes to go home. And my dad was just standing there underneath the hoop looking at me with the ball. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, come on. Come on, no way. He said, we said 50. You said 50. I didn't say 50. You said 50. 49's good enough for me. And he rolled the ball out to the free throw and he said 50. I had to do it all over again. And that's just one of the, I mean, that, the implications of that in my life have been tremendous. And he's, he was always using basketball to teach me lessons about life, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. But, uh, so dads, our job is to empower our kids to handle reality and to release them. And my dad did that well, and I thank God for him, and I know a lot of you dads and granddads. Some of you are fresh granddads as of this week, one of you, and I know you're doing that. And so we're grateful for you. All right, don't get emotional if you're the new granddad. All right, so if you noticed, um, we skipped a passage. We didn't do Matthew 
5, 43 through 48. Next week, uh, Pastor Al's going to cover that for us. Today, I want to dip into a new section, starting with uh, Matthew 6. And I want to start by confessing to you all something that I would often use when I was a younger fella <laughs> as an excuse to not go to church. Um, and I'm telling you this so that if you're tempted to use it, you're not allowed because I've already identified it. I know all your tricks. I did them too. And actually, when you hear me say it, you're probably going to recognize this. You maybe have heard it yourself. You maybe have said it yourself. It's okay. There's grace. It's common. It is this. I don't go to church because church is full of... Actually, saying that out loud, it could go any number of ways. And let's, let's, here's what I meant to say. Church is full of hypocrites. I don't go to church because church is full of hypocrites. Has anybody heard anybody ever say something like that? Okay. Nobody ever had the heart to tell me the mere fact that because I was saying that, I was actually... A hypocrite because it implied that in my entire life I have never presented myself in a way that actually isn't true to reality I've never done that I mean church people do that like the church people are hypocrites I'm not a hypocrite that's why I don't go to church because I'm not like them I'm not hypocritical it's a pretty self-righteous thing to say which is ironic because you're saying you don't go to church because they're self-righteous people who are hypocritical. And by you saying that yourself, I was being hypocritical and self-righteous. And even so, knowing that, Jesus is still interested in purging the church of certain types of spiritual hypocrisy. And today we're going to examine the first of three sections in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in uh, 6.1, where Jesus addresses three types of religious hypocrisy that were common in that day. They're probably still relevant today, but they were very common in that day. And in typical Jesus fashion, as we're learning, he is very blunt, especially when he's addressing things that lean towards self-righteousness or doing something for appearance. He is very blunt with that. He will have no part in that. And I want to begin by putting words to one of the ways that Jesus defines spiritual hypocrisy. There's a different types of hypocrisy that he talks about. And this is the one that we're going to be talking about as we go through Matthew 6. It's in your notes if you want to follow along. One form of spiritual hypocrisy is doing good things for the sake of appearing good to others. Doing good things for the sake of appearing good to others. So it's possible to do the right thing and still be wrong. Charles Spurgeon used this example of a stone apple that he saw when he was a kid on a mantelpiece. And it, was, it looked like a beautiful apple. It was shiny and red, had a green stem. But when you touched it, it was stone. And no amount of letting that sit in the sunlight or letting it ripen a little bit more will make it sweeter, will make it better. No amount of nothing would make that better because it's made out of stone. It looks good on the outside. 
but it's stone on the inside. And he says that's often what, that's what hypocrisy is. No amount of years attending church or even reading scripture, even prayer, if you don't have the spirit of God in you, will soften you, will make you more loving, will make you more gracious, will make you more kind, will make you less dramatic, which are all the results of God's work in someone's life. That's hypocrisy. So let's jump into this. Matthew 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, Here how, here's how you can be a disciple of me and not be a hypocrite. I'm going to tell you how to do it. And it essentially comes down to when you participate in religious stuff or good works, don't do it for the sake of other people seeing it. He's going to use these three examples. Today's is giving to the needy, and then it's praying, and then he talks about fasting. And we'll, we'll take a break from this next week as Pastor Al finishes up chapter 5. And then we're going to jump into what does it look like to pray hypocritically, and then what does it look like to fast hypocritically. And should we still be fasting? We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. These are all good things, and that's important. They're good things that can be done for the wrong reasons, which makes them the bad, the wrong things. Which is why Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So we had a, a young man in, that was visiting our youth group for a while when I was a youth pastor, and we had some people in our youth group that were, we were seeing some dramatic shifts in their lives. Really good thing. Self-centered teenagers learning how to love one another sacrificially. It was amazing some of the changes God was doing. Teenage dudes that would cry when they would talk to me and try to put into words what they're discovering about God's love. Incredible stuff. So we had a kid that was like... Um, uh, like the all-star of his youth group, he started coming to our youth group and he was looking around seeing all these dramatic changes and I think he was feeling a little bit insecure about it and he came up to me after youth group one time and he said, hey, can we start doing sword drills? And I was like, I don't, what, do you, what is that? I don't even know what that is. And he said, that's when you give us a passage and we race to see who can find it first. And then whoever finds it first, you play to 10 or something, the whole youth group, and then um, you give us like a certificate to Dairy Queen or something, like, can we do that? I've never got beaten that. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. I don't think you should do that. I think it's feeding the wrong thing in you. Like, you should just stick around with us long enough to begin to actually be changed internally instead of needing some external thing to show your superiority. We don't do that. And he never came back, which was sad, because I really, really loved the kid. He's a great kid. He was just taught wrong. And I'm not just picking on him either, because I find ways to do that. I promise. I'm not going to use my examples. It's embarrassing. But I will find ways to appear to be more spiritual than I am. I've been practicing that for a long time. I'm guessing that you probably have done that before, too. The second part of that verse is also important. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
This verse introduces us to a very fascinating concept in Scripture, worth some serious reflection on. If you get a hold of this, it will change you. It can't not change you. And this is in your notes. It's God rewards us when we do good things in secret. God rewards us when we do good things in secret. Imagine how your life would be different if you believed that to the core of your being. You actually believed that. And you used it as a statement to begin to reimagine your life. If you really got a hold of this truth, that part of the reward of being a follower of Jesus is that one day when he returns to earth, all the good things that you have done in secret will be rewarded by Jesus, which is just a biblical fact. If you really got a hold of that, it would change every, anything, everything. And this, this is in your notes too, when you begin to realize that God sees everything you do, both publicly and privately, and you begin to adjust your life around that fact, your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's Matthew 6, 4, and 6, and 18. Some people call it living for an audience of one. It's great. It's true. It's, it's the right way. It's a good way to live. Okay, so we've learned that Jesus isn't a fan of spiritual hypocrisy, and which is, in this case, doing good things for the sake of appearing good to others. We've also learned that Jesus' remedy for this is the fact that God rewards us when we do good things in secret. So let's look at our first case study that Jesus gives us, giving to the needy. Let me read it. It's starting in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What we need to realize in this is that God is very concerned about people living in need, particularly within the church. And there's some examples that I gave you here, and we'll look through these. And the Old Testament example comes from Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. And God is laying out some ground rules for how his people, this nation of God followers, this nation of people who are being fathered by God are supposed to be different than the world. And here's one of the ground rules. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges. There's people in here that can speak much better about this than I can. I'm not a farmer. Some of you can explain this a lot better than me, but my understanding of this is when you're reaping a field and the disciples would walk through a field and um, pull off grain and eat it, and Jesus defended them when the religious people got upset about it. So when you're reaping this field and you're harvesting, God said, leave some around the edges, or leave margin around the, out, the outside of the field so that people without land, people without homes, people who are traveling can stop and get something to eat. 
Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. So when you're harvesting and things fall to the ground, you're not supposed to go, buy, go through with baskets after things have fallen to the ground and collect them. Leave them for people who might be walking through your field. It's provision for people in need. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Did I ever tell you guys a story about my failed vineyard? I'll tell you. So when we were living in Wadsworth, we had this, we bought this house that randomly had this grapevine and it had a trellis built. It was like just a, it was like in town, it was on a brick road. It doesn't, it didn't appear, appear to be a house where you'd have a grapevine, but it was just kind of bonus. So the, it was really overgrown. And so the first year I trimmed it way back and not, so no grapes the first year. The second year we had some serious grape clusters it was incredible. They were green. It was beautiful. I was like, man, we're going to have a party. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to get some buckets and collect these. And I was looking at it one day. And I said, I'm going to give it one more day, one more day. And then we're going to cut all these off tomorrow, and it's going to be awesome. The next day I go out there, and there is not one grape on the branches. Not one. And I know we had these huge animals that would like groundhogs and raccoons that would go through our backyard. I'm sure they, I didn't have any net or no, I was just like shocked that the animals didn't leave any for me. I was so frustrated. All right, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Same deal, things fall off. Leave it there on the ground. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, I'm the God of the harvest. What you have is because of me. Leave some. I'll make sure you're covered. I'll make sure you're taken care of. New Testament example. I'm just going to read it from your notes. When the Holy Spirit came and filled the individuals of the early church with his presence and power, one of the evidences of that filling was the church providing for those in need among them. That's in Acts 2.45 and then 4.32-37. Sometimes we're looking for dramatic, miraculous um, events as proof that the Spirit of God is evident in place. And we're, we're like looking for it. We're, we're, we, we, we look for it on TV. We look for it everywhere. And it, if we just shifted our focus to looking for some of those dramatic like healings, what if we said, let's look and see where there's a ridiculous amount of generosity in a church. Every bit is a, as much of a miracle. Every bit. And it was listed as part of the results of the outpouring of the Spirit on people, they made sure that nobody among them was in need. Incredible. Paul says in Romans that God pours out his love into our hearts. Apart from God, I don't know about you, apart from God, I am super self-absorbed, super self-centered, don't really care that much about people. Apart from God. God makes you interested in other people. He actually makes you care about them when there's need. He gives you ways to help and resource people. And when it's the genuine article, when it's actually God's love at work inside of us, we don't really care if anybody else sees it. We care about the person who needs it. Are they being taken care of or not? Then who cares if anybody else knows that I'm doing this? God's not a fan of showmanship in any realm, including this one. 
We were on an urban mission trip once, and there was a, a kid that just got a hold of the love of God. It complete, again, just completely transformed his life. He came from a really tough, fatherless home, um, really tough kid. And he actually told me once, I never had a dad, so what I did to find out what a man is supposed to look like is I watched all the Clint Eastwood and John Wayne movies I, I could find. And so that's, that's how I learned how to be a man. I said, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that in you for sure. He got a hold of the love of Christ, the gospel, and it radically transformed him. We were on this urban mission trip once, and um, we, we had a pretty tight schedule when I would do mission trips. And so from 12 to 12.30, they're supposed to grab a packed lunch. The teenagers are supposed to grab a packed lunch, eat at 12.30. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to be teaching, so be ready. I don't want you coming up to me at 12.31. I forgot to grab Not my problem. You're not going to eat lunch if you don't. We were pretty, I was pretty hard back then. Um, so one of the kids, it's 12.31, I'm starting this teaching. One of the kids comes up and says, can I just talk to you real quick? I'm sorry. Uh, quick. <laughs> so they said, hey, um, so-and-so didn't eat lunch. Okay, he knew he was supposed to eat lunch. He knew that was the time to do it. Let's, he missed it. He's gonna have to wait till dinner. We're going to Carmine's, it'll be really good. No, he gave his lunch to somebody. What are you talking about? Well, he was sitting out by himself alone outside of the, the church we were staying. I looked outside and we're in the middle of a big urban area. I looked outside the window and I saw him give his packed lunch to a homeless person. He sat down and hung out with him while this homeless person ate his lunch. Wow, I am a terrible youth pastor, and thank you for telling me that, because I was going to punish him for his grace. We made sure he ate really well. God's love got a hold of him, and he couldn't help but share it. So again, Jesus describes the wrong way to give those in need in verse 2. And that is thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. This imagery of sounding a trumpet, I think, is meant to be hyperbole. I looked at, I tried to find out for sure. I think it's hyperbole. I think it's just exaggeration. It's kind of hilarious. Like, imagine someone, I'm about to give to the needy. Can you sound the trumpet, please? Like, every, look over here, look over here. It's funny. It's silly. Like, Jesus is being funny, I think, and he's saying he's talking about people that insist that people see what they're doing when they're doing a good deed. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says, when that's your motivation, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That's interesting. What's their reward? When you do something for appearances, what's your reward? People see you do it. That's their reward. Jesus is saying, fine, if you want to live for that reward. By the way, do you know how fickle people are? They'll praise you today, and tomorrow they'll find it wasn't enough and some other reason to criticize you. But if, by all means, if you want that to be your reward, that people are impressed by you for five minutes, let that be your reward. Awesome. I want to say here that that's incredibly fleeting and this passage is not saying that you shouldn't give to people and allow them to know about it. That's not what it's saying. That's not the point. So now we have to do this always in secret. I've got to make sure like obsessively no one's seeing that I'm doing this or I don't want you to know that I get. That's not at all what he's saying. He's giving 
into the motivation of false religiosity, which is only doing things for appearances. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's called non-self-conscious giving. I gave, I provided, I helped, and I forgot about it. I didn't pat myself on the back. I didn't reward myself by thinking about it over and over for the rest of the day. I didn't tell anybody else. Non-self-conscious giving, you don't give and expect recognition. You don't give and expect them to return the favor. You don't give and hope someone's following you around with a camera to take a video and put it on social media. If you do, that'll be your reward. Congratulations. People are impressed for 10 seconds. The right way to do this is to give in secret or to give to people who will probably never be able to pay you back. And James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, the real thing is doing things for people that can never do anything back for you. Orphans and widows. The forgottens in that culture. Nobody will ever know about it. They're not putting you on social media. And they're probably not going to repay you. That's the real thing. So that your giving, verse 4, may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now there's some debate about this verse. What exactly does it mean that the father will reward us? What does that look like? I mean, do we get those now? Or do we get those in the future when Jesus returns? I think it's both. Jesus indicates in other teachings that we will receive rewards now for acts of faithfulness to God and in the age to come, both. What might those rewards look like now? I just wrote some things down. So, when the Father says he's going to reward you for these things that you often do in secret, but not always, you don't have to, it just means you have the right motivation, right? You're not expecting things in return. You're doing it because you love the person. What might it look like for him to reward you for that now? Here's some things that you might experience. A deeper rest in Christ. The rest of the world around us isn't going to be more and more at rest. That's not words you would describe people with. At rest. But you will be. A deeper contentment and satisfaction with your life. A more tangible and pervasive experience of God's fatherly love for you. More abundant provision for your life. Yeah, oh yeah, sometimes it is material things. We don't chase after it. But don't tell God he can't reward you in that way. And he might choose to honor you in a certain way in front of people. Psalm 84, 11 says, for the, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You might experience what it's like to be honored, even publicly, by the Father. And you won't have drummed it up for yourself. You won't have tried to create your own platform. You won't have tried to make a name for yourself. He'll just do it as a surprise. 
What might it look like in the age to come? And there's any number of, there's a plethora of ways that God can choose to, to bless us now. What might a reward look like in the age to come? Now this is another, as we're wrapping up here, this is another part of scripture that is very shrouded in mystery. Uh, and we're not really sure. There's faint hints about, okay, when Jesus comes back for every private secret thing that we did in good that glorifies him in a way that we are also able to serve somebody else, every secret thing, those are all going to be publicly commended by God. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 5 in all over the scripture, actually. What will it look like when God rewards us in this next life? There are some faint hints about it, but nobody really knows for sure, and I haven't spent enough time thinking about it and praying about it and reading about it to give you, to talk about. I'm not comfortable enough talking about it because I just haven't done that, but we do know this. We do know this. We know who's doling out the rewards, don't we? God will do that himself, so it will be good. You know, Christmas growing up, you always have that relative, you know, extended family relative. You go to their house and you have that Christmas party and they always give these weird gifts. Like, does anybody, like don't actually, don't raise your hand, but you can probably think of somebody in your, nobody in this room does this, but you can think of someone in your distant family that when they give you a, a gift, I remember getting one gift, I opened it up, I was just like, because I'm a people pleaser, oh, this is amazing. This is awesome. What is it? What, what are you supposed to do with this? Like, I had no idea. It was like a clump of just wood and marble. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. It was always stuff like that. It was really weird. Um, and then there's people who, when they give a gift, it's amazing. My parents, my parents know how to give a gift. St- the most generous people I've ever met in my life, my mom and dad, by far. My mom thinks all year about what she's going to give us for Christmas. When she gives a gift, we're like, <laughs> everybody shut up and watch, just watch. My mom and dad know how to give good gifts. And it is fun. Like, you're not supposed to like Christmas for the gifts. Sorry, I might not be religious. Be, I love the gifts. I love giving gifts too, but I actually like receiving gifts too, so remember that. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. There are some people, when they give a gift, you want everyone to see you open it. However God chooses to reward us, in this life or the next, it will be better than you could possibly imagine. That we know because we know who's giving the gift. So we learned three things today. If the music team wants to start making their way up here, we will learn that one, Jesus is not a fan of spiritual hypocrisy. Our understanding of that today is doing good things for the sake of appearing good to others. Two, God's remedy for that is God rewards us when we do good things in secret. It doesn't mean that everything we do has to be in secret or it doesn't matter. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying when you're able to do it in secret without anybody knowing, then, you got, then you're on to something. And you should practice doing that if that's difficult. And the third thing is, whatever the reward, it will be far better than we could possibly imagine. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray.
Father, I think if you were an earthly father, the way that you treat us, I think some people would, would, would accuse you of spoiling us, of being too good to us, being too quick to forgive us, being too quick to reward us for even the smallest little thing. But that's who you are. And all things are ours in Christ. And because of that, we can look around us and find creative, beautiful, fun ways to take care of the people around us, sometimes in secret, sometimes just for the right motivation. And that is to love and serve them and to glorify you. Could you do something really amazing at Southside? Could you make us into that type of community? What would it look like for us to be a church? Constantly searching the room on Sunday mornings for ways to surprise one another with goodness. For your sake for your glory, to pay attention to the people in our neighborhoods, people at work, friends at school, scanning for ways to give out of the overflow of the ways that you've given to us, knowing that you indeed will make it worth our time. We can't outgive you, God. Can't outgive you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.